0: So, to begin, how about that Declaration of Independence? It's quite a piece of work, right? Its words have echoed down through time, inspiring movements for freedom and human rights, and it has been used as a model for countless pleas for liberty and equality. It has also provided our worship themes last month, liberty, and this month the pursuit of happiness from its famous opening line we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson described its creation this way Neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular previous writing, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. And given that it was written expressly for the occasion, as Jefferson notes, I wonder if we do ourselves a disservice by reading it as American Scripture, timeless in its relevance, profound in its every word choice, which, while Jefferson was the primary author, was finalized, edited, and revised in committee. Pauline Meyer, author of a book entitled American Scripture, Making the Declaration of Independence, points out that the Declaration of Independence in its time was really more of a press release than a philosophical statement. Its purpose was to announce the decision that Congress had made in favor of independence from British rule. The parts that we remember with such reverence got very little attention in the 18th century, she says. And one of the parts we remember with reverence is that opening line. And there's a part of me that wishes that Jefferson would have reconsidered or that some colleague of his had gently suggested a revision of that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. That part stating that the Creator endows every person with an unalienable right to pursue happiness, and that the government is charged with securing that right. It is, on the one hand, vague to the point of being unhelpful, yet precise enough that it is seen as a worthy goal to which everyone would naturally attain, and further, an activity to which one is entitled. And this when partnered with the rather individualistic proposition of independence, can lead and has led to trouble, especially because it is not such a giant leap from claiming a right to pursue happiness to claiming a right to be happy, which is a tall order indeed, and hardly something that any government, or anyone for that matter, can guarantee. I am not alone in being a little uncomfortable with the phrase, pursuit of happiness. As you heard in the reading, author and psychologist James Hillman said, I think that phrase is one of the very few mistakes the founding fathers made. I think it's the pursuit that screws up happiness. If we drop the pursuit, it's right here. Sometimes, it's the pursuit that screws up happiness. Sometimes, though we are sure this or that will make us happy, having received or achieved that something, we find it doesn't bring the happiness we had expected. At other times, whatever it might be does make us happy, but we find that other things come along with that happiness. J. Krishnamurti pointed out in his teachings that often once we become conscious of the fact that we are happy we are no longer happy. That the realization I am happy now brings with it a host of other thoughts such as soon this event will be over or this person will have to leave or this particular experience will have to end and what then? I'm happy now, but how will I be able to keep on being happy? How will I capture this recipe for happiness such that I will never have to lose it? How can I be happy when it is so clear how fleeting this happiness is? If only I knew I could make this last, if only I could recreate this, then I could be happy. And now, I am no longer happy. I have only the memory of being happy amid the anxiety about its passing and the worry that I will never be able to recreate the necessary ingredients for its return. In the midst of this pandemic and all that it requires of us in terms of isolation and distancing, I think many of us are experiencing another common syndrome involving happiness we recognize it best and identify it most readily in the rear-view mirror. Many of the things that would make us happy these days are things that, frankly, we took for granted just a few months ago. And quite outside what a pandemic teaches us, I remember hearing similar feelings expressed around my grandmother's kitchen table when I was a child. My mother and father and aunts and uncles and grandparents would sit around and share stories from the past, many taking place in the midst of and shortly following the Great Depression. Stories of a poor rural family, including exploits of making a way through snowdrifts with a horse and buggy, fixing perpetually broken-down cars, chipping ice off the insides of windows on frosty mornings, Getting that one new shirt and or dress. Everything else was hand-me-downs. One story after another. Not ignoring the difficulties and the suffering, but also recognizing, as one of my uncles once said, God, those were happy times. Though I didn't know it then. And maybe that's okay. Sure, there's a part of me that looking back at a time that I realize now was a happy time causes me to berate myself. Why didn't you recognize it in the moment? Why didn't you savor it the way you should have? But that's missing Krishnamurti's point, right? Right? If I had recognized explicitly that I was happy at the time, my monkey mind may have actually pulled me out of the experience of happiness to engage in anxious thoughts about when this happy time would end and worried speculation about how I could recreate this feeling of happiness again. You see, for me, pursuing happiness brings with it an expectation of capturing happiness, seizing it, holding on to it. If there's one thing I do know about happiness, it's that it cannot be captured. When I was active in my addiction to alcohol, I had convinced myself that there was a particular form of happiness, maybe not the highest form, but a perfectly acceptable happiness to me, that could be caught, bottled, and purchased. Long after I had failed to catch that first wave of what I identified as happiness, a mixture of pleasure, contentment, self-confidence, long after I had failed to recapture that feeling, I could not let go of the illusion that it still existed like a stubborn happiness genie inside a bottle and could be coaxed out again if I just kept tipping them. I eventually came to terms with the fact that while alcohol may have been an element in some happy times I had experienced, happiness was decidedly not contained in the substance. That it would not be reproduced by continuing in an activity that instead was causing great unhappiness. That continuing in this illusion was destroying my relationships with others and with life itself. And still, it was hard to give up that dream of such a simple solution to the pursuit of happiness. What I have come to understand for me is that the only way I can make space for happiness to exist is by letting go of outcomes. I can choose to do things I would like to do, but I cannot guarantee they will bring happiness. And to the extent that I expect they will bring happiness is the extent to which I can guarantee that my anxiety about the perceived success or failure of my endeavor will work to overwhelm any possibility of happiness. And again, it's not something to beat myself up about if I do carry expectations about outcomes. Maybe just something to notice. On my first sabbatical, Hanji and I drove from Arizona to Minneapolis via Archer City, Texas. Archer City, Texas? That was pretty much Hanji's response when I first brought up the idea. So, Larry McMurtry is one of my favorite writers from the time I started reading his work in my teens. He used to own bookstores all around the country, Tucson, Washington, D.C., a couple other cities I can't remember, and Archer City, Texas. I read shortly before my sabbatical began that he had sold all of his stores but the one in Archer City. i had always wanted to visit one of his bookstores, and with my time off and the trip to Minnesota, and Archer City wasn't too terribly out of the way, was it? I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity. Hanji graciously said, Okay. We stopped in a cafe for breakfast as we were getting close, and the waitress asked us where we were headed. I babbled something about the bookstore in Archer City and McMurtry being a favorite writer of mine, thinking that she must hear this kind of thing all the time, but she gave me a rather puzzled, uncomprehending smile. Well... Y'all have a good time. When we reached Archer City, it was hot. I mean hot. And we came from Arizona. It was over 100 degrees. Our car said 116, though I can't vouch for its precise accuracy. And far from a tourist attraction, Archer City looked like Well, if you've seen the movie The Last Picture Show, you get an idea. It was more ghost town than any place I've been before or since. The bookstores took up a good share of the town square in four different locations. Huge converted garages, floor-to-ceiling books, air conditioners chugging away, though only mildly effective against the heat. I can't remember how long I browsed. Anji gave up early and said, take your time. I found a couple books that I sort of kind of wanted, and that was about it. As I was leaving, I had that moment of anxiety. Was this everything I had imagined? Was there something else I was supposed to have done? Something else that should occur to mark this pilgrimage? Was I leaving too early? As it was clear, I would never return. And I don't remember when it happened exactly. But I remember a wave of peace that rushed over me when I realized that I had had no particular expectations worth noting. It was such an odd thing to have embarked upon out of the ordinary that it was more about exploration than expectation, and not even exploration with a particular purpose. I had wanted to come. Sanji graciously accompanied me, recognizing its importance to me. I could stay a little while longer or not. There was nothing that should happen. There was only what did happen. That was it. And looking back now, I recognize that as a happy time, though I don't know that I can ever explain exactly why. It wasn't long after our trip that the Archer City stores closed, too, rescuing me from even the possibility of carrying the illusion that I could go back there and recreate a happy time. In all, I am reminded that it isn't so much about pursuing something that isn't there. I think it's the pursuit that screws up happiness, says James Hillman. If we drop the pursuit, it's right here. And there is a part of me that doesn't even wish to confine it to this particular definition. It's here and it's not. Or there are times when I cannot access it. Sometimes it comes when I find meaning in something. Sometimes it comes when I forget about meaning altogether. Sometimes it shows up when I stop struggling. Sometimes... It is present right in the midst of struggle. All I know for sure is that it is not something I need to worry about. The point in life, says Genzi, is to know what's enough. Why envy those otherworld immortals? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth.